We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, uh, Joe Quinn, co-host uh, Joe, Joe Quinn, and uh, my co-host this week is Neil Bradley. Hi, Joe. I'm glad you remembered yourself. I yes. Hi, everyone. I remember who I am, <laughs> and I remember who you are. Uh, that's about all I remember this week, so uh, don't expect much from me. <laughs> uh, no, this week, actually, uh, we are talking to Stefan Verstappen. Um, we've had Stefan on the show previously, um, yeah, in January last this year. Yes, uh, Stefan is a Canadian writer, researcher, and a world traveler, and he is the author of six books, including The 36 Strategies of Ancient China and The Art of Urban Survival. And in that book, The Art of Urban Survival, um, there is a chapter on Defense Against the Psychopath, which uh, he turned into a short video on YouTube. If you look it up, Defense Against the Psychopath, it's a very good video, and it went kind of pretty viral, had a lot of hits. Yeah. Um, and Stefan has recently uh, made another um, YouTube video, and he, it's, it's, it's p- part of an article, basically, um, called Historical Cycles, Are We Doomed to Repeat the Past? And that's kind of what we want to talk uh, with him about this week. But I have yet to get uh, Stefan on the phone, so I'm going to go ahead and try and uh, uh, do that um, now, because uh, we have problems logging in tonight. Sorry, but your call cannot be completed. Ah, check out that guy. <laughs> Sorry, okay. but your call cannot be completed. I heard it the first time. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue on, but uh, Neil, just uh, for me there. Yes. So, well, if you remember. Or if you haven't seen it yet, do check out our discussion with Stefan from January this year. I think it was actually the show went out maybe early February. Anyway. Um, Sorry, but your call cannot be completed. Mm-hmm. We wanted him on because of specifically of his Defense of the Psychopath video. But it was that was really a kind of um, synopsis of his ideas from just one chapter of a broader book, The Art of Urban Survival. And the basic theme of what he's discussing is Stefan's more or less convinced that we're in a crazy time. No matter how you slice it, whether you're in a kind of survivalist camp and you see the writings on the wall for the economy, whether you're looking at the weather and going, holy Moses, something's going on, or whether you're looking at all the the warmongering and the inevitability of some kind of major conflagration or something, whichever way you slice it, Stefan just simply says, okay, they're chaotic times. Now, he knows they've happened before. And he's studied extensively from living in China and other places in the East. He's well aware that they, in their own histories, are well aware also that these kind of general situations of chaos have occurred repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Now, it would be interesting to get from a kind of an idea of how often 
are we talking like every thousand years, every two thousand years, or even less, every five hundred years, or less still? Because of course, in this kind of subject matter, you've got potentially cycles within cycles and so on. But we're going to be talking to him about a simple breakdown based on his study of Chinese history of what's basically called the dynastic cycle, where a group of people come to power, the the, the sort of the longevity and then the quality of their rule, and then the beginnings of a breakdown in that system, social system, followed by a period of chaos. And Stefan isn't just relying on the Chinese histories or histi- historiographies to produce this kind of simple and easy-to-follow model of how uh, civilizations rise and fall. There are, of course, modern sociologists, historians, and theorists who essentially come to the same basic themes, even though they may not rely so much on a similar, more esoteric text from ancient history. Nevertheless, um, it's a it's a ser- topic that is taken seriously. And what will be really interesting to hear from Stefan is the extent to which the ruling elite in any dynasty or empire or civilization were aware of what was going on. The big theme in this recent video he published, the one well, at his core message, I believe, is that everyone's heard the saying attributed to George Santayana that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Verstappen goes one step further and he says, it's, it's not so much that you, the person reading history and making subjective mistakes, mistakes, therefore fail to learn the lesson, rather that it is an inevitable historical cycle. For all your will and your might, you cannot break it. That's the central argument he's making. And it's, uh, on the one hand, it's, whoa, well, that's scary. I mean, we're in a, we're in a chaotic period and what, there's no way out of it? Well, no. He's also found there are other things going on at each stage in the cycles where people have choices, especially in that darkest point in a historical cycle, the chaos period or stage, because opportunities open up for everyone and not just for the elites who invariably tend to, um, let's say, give free reign to their drives, which are largely responsible for bringing out the period of chaos, which is greed, exorbitant taxation, um, some kind of uh, police state measures. Police state measures are not a new and modern thing. They happen again and again. Obviously, today we've got different technologies, but it's nevertheless the same phenomena as has happened in the past. Now, um, we may also be having Laura. She's hopefully going to pop in and lend us her two cents because Laura has written extensively on historical cycles as well, um, particularly in one long article on the Golden Age in which she brings together some other 
text. But mainly, Laura's focus is mainly on Western historical analysis, which it'll be interesting to, to balance it off with Stefan Verstappen, because he's looking at it more from an Eastern perspective. But uh, in another book that we published this year by Pierre Lascaudron, co-written with Laura, um, Pierre and Laura made use of a very interesting chart, which actually pops up in Stefan's video as well, the Chinese dynastic cycle, in which uh, you can you can see, as it was described historically by the Chinese, this isn't modern overlay on top of an old diagram. The original diagrams more or less described each of these subsets from the rise of a civilization, its flowering, its gradual corruption, and then a wolf collapse into chaos, and the way in which a new civilization emerges from it. In, for those of you who've seen, I think we have it up with today's show page, the image from Pierre's book. Pierre took the original, well, the original, original, but there are several diagrams or schematics of the Chinese dynastic cycle, also called the Mandate of Heaven, which I'm hoping Stefan's going to explain to us more detail. And he embellished it a little bit based on observations we can make today. Okay, there are four basic stages, but there are also very similar recurring patterns, specific things that happened in between each stage. Today, for example, in the world of high finance, such things as uh, printing money, when a government basically has uh, no, uh, no longer has actual hard currency, traditionally gold and silver, to back up the currency it issues. This is not just a uniquely modern phenomenon. This is exactly the kind of specific practice that would have happened in ancient China, in Rome, if in the medieval collapse in Europe, and again today. And it's astonishing when you look at specific things. What we know is austerity measures, tightening the, 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 the size of public budgets, scaling back on infrastructural projects. All of these specific policies occur over and over and over again. So, yeah, we're looking at cycles in the broad sweep and the incredible similarities between events, the inevitability of the cycle. We're going to be looking at how and to what extent our elites today are aware of this. How do they deal with it? I think we have uh, Stefan on, on the line here. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and take it, hopefully. Hi, Stefan, are you there? Uh, okay, I think he's there. All right. Hi, Stefan, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I'm here, Joe. Hi, excellent. I'm sorry. I think you were you were, you went to our screener there for a second. Um, well, uh, a belated welcome to the show, Stefan. We've just been we we kind of introduced you, and then we tried to call you. We've been having a uh, a bit of a problem here tonight. First of all, it was very difficult for us to log in. I got I got logged into the show about five seconds before it went live. 
And then uh, when I tried to call you, it told me that I, it couldn't get through to you. So um, thank you very much for calling. But we've um, we've done a, we've done a little intro, basically just your bio. But um, uh, the title of the show is, uh, as, I, as I've said already, is Historical Cycles, Are We Doomed to Repeat the Past? And that's based on this um, short, uh, relatively short 12-minute or so video that you put on YouTube that I think is... Uh, it's it's an it's an article that's going to appear in Trans Trans Journal or already has. Yes, it's already out in the uh, autumn edition of the Trans Journal. Okay, so that that video is is actually you um, narrating narrating the the, the article. article. Yes, yeah, that's all it is. And okay, then, you know, added some graphics to it to illustrate yeah. some of the points. Well, it's it's. I mean, for me, it was it was fantastic uh, because I mean, first of all, it's it sums up so much and so much uh, that uh, we, uh, you know, at, at SOT.net have been uh, speaking about and researching and, and writing about for so long, and it sums it all up in a very kind of nice, uh, concise, uh, neat package. But it's it really uh, it really brings it home, you know, the essentials to it. But why? Um, maybe just to get back to why did you? Um, or where or when did you first start researching historical cycles? Um, yeah, I, I, it goes back a long time. I first, um, you know, when you grow up, you go through like reading phases. So I went through my science fiction phase, and then I went through a, uh, uh, you know, my 1920s phase where I read everything I could on on uh, the authors from the 1920s. And, and mm-hmm. so it was during my science fiction phase when I was reading a lot of science fiction books. I read everything by... Uh, um, Isaac Asimov and um, and it was his book The Foundation Triology and the premise of the book was that there was a uh, you know a futuristic society uh, intergalactic and uh, there was a historian that had figured out a mathematical formula to predict the future and he predicted that the empire was going to collapse and he also wanted to save the um, you know, the knowledge of that empire, you know, during the ages of chaos so that they could rebuild the empire after the bad times had gone by, which is, you know, right. a very similar theme. If, you know, if you read Gurdjieff, what he wrote about the uh, the Sarmoon Brotherhood and, and the symbolism of the honeybees and the monastic system, um, you know, this is not an uncommon idea that somebody mm-hmm. is predicting the end of an empire. Um, they are making plans to sort of like build an ark to carry the you know the knowledge and wisdom of the previous civilization through the dark times into the next civilization so mm-hmm. the book intrigued me for a number of reasons number one is you know pure self-interest i thought wouldn't it be great to be able to predict the future you know isn't that what we all want to yeah. know more or less right what's going to happen tomorrow what can i do about it now so it always stuck in the back of my head and um, years later i was in taipei and um, at that time, I was reading anything that was available, which wasn't a lot. And so we would always exchange books between um, myself and the other expats. And uh, I came across a book. I, there was nothing left. And it was called The Downfall of Capitalism and Communism by, uh, I think it was Ravi Bhaktra. And uh, it's not a book I would ever normally read. It looked like it was some sort of financial forecast book. Anyways, I gave it a shot. I read the book, and um, 
in it, he describes basically the entire book is about this theory by an Indian philosopher named uh, P.J. Uh, PJ Sarkar, and uh, he you know formulated this theory of historical cycles and the four ages of of, of merchant, intellectual, and um, uh, warrior, and he describes the fourth age as laborer, which I found not really that helpful. But anyways, so I came across that other cycle, and I kept that in the back of my mind as well. Now, this is going back another 30 years ago. And since then, anytime I read history, what I'm looking for is a cycle. I want to see a pattern because I want to be able to predict the future. I want to see what's coming. I want to know where I am now, what's happening in, in the future. And I also want to know you know, the past because the past determines the present and the present determines the future. Anyways, long story short, there's been dozens and dozens of theories about historical cycles. But more recently, I've grown concerned over the you know the events of our society now you know it's for 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 example to me it's pretty obvious that the government and the powers that be or the elite whatever you want to call them are preparing for something nasty to happen and you know it's obvious the militarization of the police their you know endless security and surveillance and and uh, you know cutting down on your rights and freedoms, it's pretty obvious that they're expecting something bad to happen. So I began to wonder, knowing how, you know, obsessed the elite are with predictive programming and modeling and being able to predict people's behaviors, you know, they, you know, all their think tanks and their, uh, um, are mm-hmm. dedicated to finding ways of manipulating humanity and finding out what humanity is thinking. So I thought, are they following some sort of predictive program that is warning them that something bad is going to happen or are they planning for something bad to happen? But you know what? Either way, it's still part of the cycle. So I thought uh, I would write an article about that. Well, it's a very worthwhile endeavor. Um, the, in your in your article slash and the video uh, from it on YouTube, you talk about um, four ages of, of civilizations. Could you describe a little bit about uh, what are? Sure. In what I did with the article, and originally the article was like eight thousand words. <laughs> it was one of Laura's uh, essay length articles, you know, because uh-huh. it's not easy to easy to explain historical cycles. It very quickly because it's really there's a lot of research material that goes into it i mean you know for people unfamiliar with this subject it may seem flippant to be able to say well you know we can predict the future based on a few of these events but actually there's a lot of research that went into it however when i sent the original essay to the trans journal they said we really like it but can you bring it down to under 1500 words so three quarters of the mm-hmm. article I've had to edit out. And so what is left is the, the essence of the, uh, of the theory. And what I did in, in devising and in, in writing the original essay is I took the common themes from all the different uh, theories. And there's about a dozen different theories about historical cycles, and they all have different names. And some have five stages, some have eight stages, some have um, no fewer than four, though. So what I did is I kind of combined them all to to find a consensus among all the theories. And so 
my consensus is that there are four stages, and the four stages are called warrior, uh, intellectual, merchant, and then for me, I decided to call it chaos uh, because that's what it is. Other other theories call it the the lead age or the iron age or the age of war, but it's all just chaos would be a better descriptor. So the four ages then, we begin the cycle with the warrior age, and a lot of this comes from the writings of Joseph Campbell as well, and there's a sprinkling of the Gurdjieff in there as well, but I can't remember exactly where from the Gurdjieff writings I, I took it from, but I'm pretty sure a lot of it is from uh, Gurdjieff's work or Ospensky's work. But we start off with the warrior age, and the warrior age is an age of... Um, adventure, of courage, of honor, of exploration, of building, of overcoming obstacles, of conquering nature or taming nature. And um, this age is um, usually at the beginning of a civilization. Uh, this is where you know people move to a new country and they have to establish themselves first as uh, pioneers and then slowly to build up the infrastructure into towns and villages and eventually into cities and ports and and all of this requires you know a, a active uh, um, endeavor on the part of you know it's sort of the male principle that's uh, kind of if we get to and uh, and Rand's uh, um, Atlas shrugged it's uh, you know it's mm-hmm. the architects and the engineers it's the people that build the country so that's the warrior age and it it, it eventually evolves once the country or the dynasty or the society has been established, it evolves into the second stage, which is the intellectual stage. And this makes sense. We can see this kind of pattern with immigrants to North America. The new immigrants, you know, they tend to work at menial jobs and they work very hard and they save their money and they build a home and a family. But as soon as they have the money, they want their kids to go to college. So we enter into an intellectual phase of society, and this is often termed a golden age because mm-hmm. um, we've built a civilization, we've overcome the adversity of either hostile tribes or hostile environments, and uh, <clears throat> we're starting to prosper, and now we have free time to devote to intellectual pursuits. And so the emphasis now goes into art and science and um, and new ideas and innovations. And so we enter into an intellectual age, and again, this tends to be the golden age of a civilization where things are pretty good. You know, We're no longer afraid of, of being invaded. We're no longer worried about the environment. Um, we have money, we have security, and we are now dedicating our energies to improving our minds and improving society. Then eventually the intellectual age metamorphosizes into a merchant age. And again, this sort of makes sense um, from an immigrant point of view. You, you send the kids off to college, they get their degree, and when they come out, what they want to do is make money and make more money than their parents did. And it makes sense because you know we there's a certain wealth that is built up during the warrior age and intellectual age. And there's a lot of wealth there. Things are working well. 
during an age of peace, um, when people aren't squandering a fortune on killing people somewhere else, then that money goes into the economy, the local economy, and people can do well for themselves. They, this is the only time that I could see in these cycles where there is what you would call upward mobility. <laughs> Excuse me. It's one of the few times in history where, you know, uh, working class people, if they're smart and they're uh, entrepreneurial and they work hard, they can actually build a better life and, and improve their situation and, and move up to a middle class uh, lifestyle or upper middle class and in some cases even into an upper class lifestyle. So this is the age of the merchant and it's not necessarily an evil age. Um, because in, in the early stages, women tend to have a little bit more equality. There's a lot more money going around in the, in, in the uh, economy. Uh, people tend to be better overall. Um, but what happens towards the end of the merchant stage is that all this extra money brings out um, you know, the parasites and the predators it now gives an opportunity for psychopaths because psychopaths don't have that much of an opportunity in the first you know, three stages. The warriors won't put up with them. The intellectuals can see no. through them. But during the merchant age where money is plentiful and there are also numerous uh, structures, social structures in place already built by the warriors, built by the intellectuals, and they're hierarchical structures, and a hierarchical structure is a breeding ground for psychopaths because they are genetically engineered to find the top of any such structure, which brings us to you know the symbolism of the pyramid, which really is a symbol for a hierarchical structure. And that's why psychopaths, I think, favor the symbol of the pyramid in their uh, iconography, because it symbolizes their environment. That's their field of endeavor. They find a social system, and through their ability to deceive and manipulate, they will get to the top of it. And once mm. they're in the top of it, they have control of all this wealth. And so what happens then is that their power and their wealth, combined with their inherent corruption, causes that corruption to spread like a poison throughout the society until finally it starts to rot. It's like literally a cancer. Uh, the psychopaths form a cancer, uh, a cancerous tumor within the society. It starts to drain the rest of society of its life sources, meaning energy, work, money, it's all drained and sucked up by this cancer, and eventually the host dies. And when the host dies, we are into the fourth stage of the uh, cycle, which is the age of chaos, where everything just breaks down, nothing works, um, greed, corruption, violence, criminality. Um, those are the key signs and symptoms of that age. And so though that is the uh, four-stage cycle, uh, sort of in a nutshell, Joe. Yeah, that's uh, wow. just a little uh, needles here with me uh, this week as well. I didn't get a chance to introduce you. Hi, Stefan. It's good to have you back. That was a great explanation. Yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> Boil down. It's... Well, just from hearing you describe it there, it strikes me that... Um, 
the obviously the obvious problem in that is the psychopathy or psychopaths among the the human population because uh, you know effectively what seems to be happening happening is that as as these cycles occur well it's almost as if psychopaths are the cause of these kind of cycles because they are the ones who effectively disrupt them and corrupt them and cause a collapse of the of the civilization in the, in the period of chaos and then it kind of has to start again uh, because like as you kind of just described they suck up human creativity as, as human if we take it back to the very beginning for example of human civilization the very first one if there ever was one um you know human beings evolved and they became more intelligent and more creative creativity produced a higher and higher society and as you said wealth and prosperity uh, but there's this element within the human uh, gene pool I suppose our human population uh, that sucks that creativity from ordinary people and ultimately causes the destruction of society yeah I you know I, it's it's hard to say because it's like a chicken and the egg um analogy what came first the corruption and yeah. the psychopaths came or did the psychopaths come first and then the corruption i think the two go hand in hand it's like a you know it's like a symbiotic association and i think it's natural too mm. i mean in nature we have things like parasites probably mm -hmm. another analogy to describe the psychopaths within our society is the parasitic model you know, life is a, a set of competing survival strategies. And um, one of the survival strategies we find in nature is the parasite. And of all the, you know, survival strategies from predators to grazers to herds, um, of course, the parasites are the most disgusting form of life form on the planet. It's just mm -hmm. if there's anything that you could, you know, deem as absolutely otherworldly and demonic, it's the life cycle of the average psychopath. So, um, and w the way a psychopath works with the host has a lot of parallels to the way. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the way a parasite acts with a host has a lot of parallels to the way a psychopath acts within a society. For example, a parasite, one of the things that many parasites do is take over the mind of the host animal. It invades the thinking functions of the creature it's, it's living off of, and it changes the behavior patterns, which is, it's so bizarre. It's, it's literally a science fiction story for example uh, mm -hmm. invasion of the body snatchers or the brain eaters or them or you know all these uh, science fiction movies from the 50s talk about an alien species that invades humanity and takes over the minds of humans um, this is exactly what a parasite does <coughs> excuse me let me give you an example there is a, uh, a a wasp called the emerald jewel wasp and uh, it, it, uh, in order for it to reproduce, it must lay its eggs inside the body of a Brazilian cockroach. So what it does is the, the wasp will find a cockroach and it will use its stinger to insert a poison into the brain of the cockroach. What it, it inserts a type of neurotoxin that has been evolutionarily designed specifically for the brain functions of a cockroach. And when it inserts its stinger into the 
you know, the, the, the head of a cockroach, it does so with surgical precision. I mean, this is all pure instinct. It's amazing uh, and, mm-hmm. and frightening. But it inserts its stinger directly in the spot of the brain of the cockroach that it needs to. It inserts a neurotoxin, and it turns the cockroach into a zombie. And now, instead of the cockroach having a survival instinct where it would run from the wasp, it instead becomes a zombie, and the wasp literally keeps it captive. It leads it around. It pulls it around by its antennae, and it puts it in a box, and it tells it to stay there in the box. And then it, you know, the horror comes in next, where the you know emerald jewel wasp inserts its eggs into the belly of the cockroach. The eggs turn into larvae, and the larvae eat their way out of this still breathing you know cockroach. Wow. Zombified and is now, you know, capable, uh, completely incapable of defending itself or doing anything, and then finally it, it kills the cockroach. I mean, it's the basis for the movie Alien. Basically, that's where they got that. Mm-hmm. That and the tarantula wasp is another example. But so here we have, you know, this is a paradigm, a parasitic paradigm. So a creature mm-hmm. comes in, it numbs the mind of the host so that the host is no longer able to defend itself against the parasite. And so what do we see happening in our, in our society? The psychopaths have taken over the instruments of education and media. And through those instruments, it is brainwashing the population, the general population. And, and, and it, it's brainwashing and it's turning humanity into a giant mass of zombies incapable of defending themselves against this parasitic parasitic infestation that is sucking the life blood out of every man, woman and child on this planet and destroying it and we can't defend ourselves because we're asleep. We're sheeple. And <clears throat> but part of this being asleep and, and being a sheeple is the mind drug, the poison that has been inserted into the body of the host, which is our civilization, and it's been inserted by the parasites, which are the psychopaths that run Hollywood, that run the newspapers, that run the magazines, that own the TV stations and the radio stations and the book publishers and control our educational system. Now, all that media, all those institutions are designed to affect our minds. Originally, it was intended during the warrior and intellectual age to make us smarter, more productive, more self-reliant, and happier. Now, those same institutions, since they've been taken over by the psychopaths, have reversed that process. It's now intended to make us more stupid. It's intended to make us more dependent and less self-reliant. And so this is the stage of, of... the end stage of the mercantile age and the beginning stages of chaos when the parasites have taken over the minds and the attitudes of most people, and that's the end. Wow, that's a pretty damning uh, vision uh, of of our society, but unfortunately a very accurate one. Do, Do you think, or do you find it interesting that there's this that well, for for quite a few years there has been a zombie kind of meme trending yeah. in society. I mean, does that not sure. strike you as? I mean, obviously people think it's just fun and stuff, but I wonder if there isn't something um, coming up from the 
I don't know, collective unconscious they're trying to warn people. Collective unconscious, you know, the Carl Jung theory of the collective unconscious, and we're projecting our inner turmoil onto the screen, onto the world, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. yeah, no, I definitely think that's that's part of it. Absolutely. Now, listen, I love zombie movies. Uh, well, mm-hmm. not love, but uh, you know, I, I enjoy them. Um, they're fun. Yeah, they, they're fun. But uh, you know, I, as a survival expert, uh, anybody that watches these survival uh, these uh, zombie movies do not take any lessons from that on how to survive a real zombie attack. Uh, again, even the the videos and the movies about the zombies are teaching people to be idiots because that's, you know... I, that's exactly, yeah. You know, a zombie attack. Jeez, I could, I could take over the world with a samurai sword in about two months. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't be ashamed. Uh, we've, we've watched one or two zombie flicks, but we don't watch them for survival tactics. Good, good, because it, 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 it's trying to subvert your survival instinct. But yeah, I, th- I agree. I, I think it's a projection of our collective subconscious uh, subconscious, um, and and that is what we are. You know, because I teach uh, disaster preparedness, and uh, my book is on you know how to survive uh, disasters and uh, how to survive in the big city. People um, tend to make fun of me. You know, they want to poo-poo the seriousness of the subject, and they'll say things like, "Oh, well, are you preparing for a zombie apocalypse?" And my reply is, I'm already living in a zombie apocalypse. And we are. You know, uh, any sane human being looks around him and says, this is madness. The world we live in, the society we've created for ourselves, is completely insane. There is no area in our society, no institution, no structure that you can examine with any clarity of thought and not come to the conclusion that it's completely insane. So we are already in the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question. If, If we are now at chaos stage, where might you place in that more, that rough four stage model, where might you place our, though the beginning of this cycle's warrior stage? Is it, or the other other way of asking it is, when was the last chaos stage? Yeah, that's a good question. And the thing with the historical cycles is, um, there are many theories, and each theory has different time periods. Um, for yeah. example, I was reading Laura's article, and it was a great article, and. Um, and her time periods, and she was mentioning, of course, the uh, you know the great cycle and, the, and then the yuga cycles and things like that. And they all mm-hmm. have you know uh, time periods thirty thousand years, twenty four thousand years, eight thousand years, I believe. Um, what I think it is, and it's just a theory. I, I haven't done the research for it, but it's it's my you know just a hunch. So take it with a grain of salt. But I believe the uh, the historical cycles. Uh, fulfill their their cycle in a similar way that a musical scale does. And again, we get to, you know, Gurchev's theory about uh, about octaves, and I want to apply that as well. I think the cycles work as octaves. So I think, and I, and, and I believe Laura brought this out in her article, that we have, you know, a great age, 
of, of cycles, and then there are smaller ages within that, and then there right. are smaller ages within that. So if we can look at these as being octaves, there is the the great tone, the A major scale, um, uh, the A major concert A, which is 440 hertz. And then we have the octave of A major, which is one octave above, which would be 220 hertz. And then we have an octave above that, which would be 110 hertz, and and so on. Now, <clears throat> I think what we're seeing is then octaves, cycles within cycles. So there are um, the four stages within a larger stage and four stages within a larger stage again. So I kind of think if we look at the Western civilization, uh, certainly um, most of the changes seem to have come in 16th century, um, 16th, 17th century. This was obviously the warrior age because this was the age of exploration and innovation in the sciences and and colonization was, you know, we discovered North America, well, in the 15th, but then we went on to discover the rest of the world and colonize it and build cities. And it was during this time that, um, you know, beginning with the uh, American Revolution that um, set the example for greater freedoms for the rest of the world, um, you know, it was after the American Revolution that the, the French brought in their uh, um, their version of the Constitution, and then many of the German or many of the European uh, countries followed suit, and and then we saw uh, you know a buildup of of science where the universities were established and flourished, and many of the scientific breakthroughs occurred. So that would take us into, you know, the 18th or uh, early 19th century. And then starting later into the into the 20th or early 20th century, we obviously went into a mercantile or a merchant age where, you know, Henry Ford perfected the uh, um, the assembly line. Excuse me. And uh, you know, prosperity began to increase and so um the, that I think is sort of a smaller cycle within a larger cycle. So probably the last two, three hundred years uh, to complete this cycle, starting, say, in the 1700s uh, up into the present age, and now we're, we're, we're going to head into the, uh, the chaos period. Hopefully it won't last too long, um, but um, who knows. But also I think each country itself will have a similar type of cycle that may or may not align with the general cycle of Western civilization as a as a whole. So I think for Russia, I, I'm pretty sure their decline came, their age of chaos started in the 1900s, 19 during the uh, uh, the Russian uh, Revolution, uh, the Communist Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. I think that was the be the end of uh, or the beginning of chaos for them, and then we can see now it's. You know, it's lasted a hundred years. Um, you know, Russia has uh, been a horrible place to live for for Russian people for the last hundred years, and that is certainly indicative of the age of chaos for Russia. So, even though the rest of Western civilization was going through a merchant stage at that time, I think Russia was already into an age of chaos, and possibly from what we're seeing now, Russia may now be leading the world going into a warrior age and uh, hopefully they can uh, rebuild their civilization again.
Yeah, very interesting. So you've got this is this makes a lot of sense. It's not so much a discrete set of subsequent stages as there are also considerations of different geographic locations and the four stages happening within another set of four stages bigger than that and another bigger still. What strikes me about um, today, I mean, okay, you mentioned Russia as a potential exception. Nevertheless, it's like anywhere else in our globalized interdependent world. It is um, still nevertheless exposed like everywhere else to the same predations of extremely powerful psychopaths at this time. That and the fact that as far as we know, at no time in known human history has the population been this large, the general population, and therefore has the population of psychopaths within it been this large. Which kind of sets us up for many of those number four stages converging into one point in time. Well, that's what I'm wondering, you know, because what happens when, I think when we see, uh, uh, you know, a a complete breakdown of civilization, like after the fall of Rome, um, I think what happens is that the chaos cycle or stage of numerous different countries all line up at the same time. And uh, that might be what's happening now that uh, also, you know, when we say stages, we assume that they're all of equal length and duration. And as we know, there's no straight lines in nature. So similarly, I don't think there is any set time period for each stage. I think some stages could last 100 years. Other stages could last 10 years. It depends on the current circumstance. And so it's like a it's like hand to hand combat, Joe. You can't. Uh, say, oh, I'm going to do a kick and then a punch and then a this. You have to react to the situation as it develops. And so it's a fluid, constantly changing environment. And the historical cycles seem to be the same way. It's very fluid and it's constantly changing. Can we postpone the chaos stage another 10 years? Yes, probably, maybe. Um, Can we postpone it another 50 years? I don't think so, but... Again, I can't see that far into the future. Something may arise that would postpone this. Uh, There may be suddenly a a political movement that gains uh, huge popularity and, uh, and, uh, you know, takes over the institutions and is able to uh, create a better world or at least delay the the eventual downfall of our civilization, possible. Um, So we have to look at, you know, the situation as it is and as it is developing right now. And so as it's developing right now with the, you know, uh, I can tell just from the media here in Canada, it's it's so obvious. It's the propaganda. It's, you know, I'll give you an example of how they roll out propaganda. Um, three weeks ago, I'm listening to CBC Radio, which is Canada's equivalent of the BBC and it's a pure propaganda wing of the of the government. So they had a call-in sh- uh, show, and, uh, uh, and the subject was, uh, is Canada doing enough to combat ISIS? Now, here's the question. You know, I mean, not the question should be, should we be bothered, involved uh, in the Middle East 
in the first place. No, that's not the question. The assumption is we should be there. The question is, are we doing enough killing? And you know, all the call in, uh, all the callers that called in, all mentioned at some point in their um, in their comments the term "boots on the ground." Now, when I heard that uh-huh. term "boots on the ground," I went right away. It keyed my bullshit meter. You know, my mm-hmm. antenna. I have a keen sense of bullshit. And I know the key words that they use. I know their little neuro-linguistic programming tricks. I get it. You know, these people think they're so smart, okay, that they, you know, they can manipulate us. They can, you know, get us to jump around like marionettes at the end of a string. But you know what? A little bit of research and, and, and an IQ above 90, and they're not that smart, okay? So here it comes. Every call-in, supposedly the average Canadian listener, of course they were all plants, but the average Canadian listener were all concerned about boots on the ground. Now, that started four weeks ago, Joe. And then every news story, every week since then, um, they would have some expert commentator. And once again, the phrase, boots on the ground, came in. You know, And uh, it started to become a drinking game with me. I would turn on the radio and I would have a sip of my beer every time I heard somebody say, boots on the ground. And within an hour, I was drunk. <laughs> it, it's just ridiculous. So I know the propaganda. Now, why are they ramping up this propaganda? It's so obvious. Well, boots on the ground means they want Canadians. And when I say Canadians, I mean usually poor Quebec farm boys, because that's the majority of the Canadian army. I don't know why Quebec is the supplier of most of the farm, uh, soldiers, but, you know, rural kids that don't have a great education and they sucker these guys into the army and they want to send these guys over to Iraq and Syria to kill people. Now, to me, that is a clear indication of the age of chaos because um, this is war for no good reason. Canada has nothing to do. I mean, we don't even have to deconstruct the whole fraud of the Middle East wars to begin with. I mean, we could spend days talking about that. But just the, the the small you know tissue that you, you the corner of the of the the paint that you start to scrape up with just this little propaganda even from this little sign I can tell you this is a sign that we are entering an age of chaos because there is first of all Canada we used to have a reputation for fifty years for sixty years as the world's peacekeepers um, you know when I was sixteen I backpacked through Europe. And uh, on the back of my backpack, I had a big Canadian flag. You know, um, everybody, all the students in those days, they all had their country's flag on their on their backpack. So we all knew where we were from. And everywhere I went in Europe, I was greeted with such kindness and such admiration. Everywhere people said, oh, you're Canadian. Oh, we love you. You people were, you know, you liberated Holland and uh, you liberated France and and uh, you've always been peacekeepers. And, and uh, you know, this was the reputation of Canadians. Now, we Canadians are marching to war. We've already sent jet fighters there. And now with this nonsense about boots on the ground, they're preparing to send, uh, you know, our our kids to go and kill people that have nothing to do with Canada, never did anything to Canada. There is no reason in the world. Well, there is a reason. The reason is the psychopaths have taken over Canada. We are entering an age of chaos, 
and chaos means war and death and misery, and that's what they're preparing for, and that's why the goddamn CBC is coming out with this boots-on-the-ground meme that they've been promoting for the last two months now. I get angry sometimes. Yeah, well, geez, it's righteous anger because, I mean, that is, it's totally unconscionable because, I mean, just blithely repeating boots on the ground, boots on the ground and programming uh, kids in this way, like you described. I mean, these people are, the media are complicit in sending uh, sending young Canadians off to to die uh, in, in a foreign land for, for, for profit, for the profit of, um, of corporations and government. I mean, that's, I mean, it's horrible. To maintain an economic system that destroys those very same kids' futures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stefan, what do you, um, I mean, you talked a little bit about it and you said you you can't see it too far into the future, but, um, and you talked about maybe something that'll come along that'll kind of um, delay a kind of a collapse, but what do you see in, in the future in terms of having looked at these previous cycles and their rise and fall? What do you, in, in, in our context and in the way the world is today, our civilization is today, what kind of future do you see assuming there'll be some kind of a collapse? Well, listen, you know, the, there's only one thing um, that's really a wild card in the theory of historical cycles, and that is... Uh, our modern communications, mass communications, and specifically the Internet. This is our only chance. Um, We are able to disseminate information like never before. You know, the printing press was able to free Europe from the mind control of the Catholic Church because they were able to print out Bibles and and now even, you know, poorer communities could afford a Bible, and people began to read books. And once they began to read books, the dissemination of of information is deadly to the parasites that control things. And so we saw the the Protestant Reformation, which I'm not a Protestant, I'm anti-Christianity on all facets, but at least they broke the stranglehold of the Catholic Church, the, those evil pedophile psychopaths that had, you know, controlled Europe for a thousand years, at least they broke that hold. Now, the Internet and your radio show and, you know, print-on-demand publishing and is a chance to disseminate information to a, an audience like never before in history. And if we can get enough people, and I think we only need about 10%, of the population to uh, not only wake up, but also have enough courage to start to challenge their assumptions. If we can get that to happen through the internet, through the dissemination of information, I believe it is possible to, uh, if not delay the onset of chaos, then maybe shorten the duration, you know, go through five years, you know, like the Second World War, was five really awful years, but, you know, they came out of it, and within 10 years, it was the 1950s, and everybody was buying cars and, and houses again. Um, maybe we can reduce the severity of the chaos, uh, but if we can't do that, then the future is exactly what George Orwell predicted, and that is a jackboot stomping on a human face forever. Well, well, that's a yeah, that's a cryptic um, 
description. But I mean, in terms of looking at previous civilizations, some of them were do appear to have been kind of uh, wiped out, right? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, most of them. Most of them. Yeah. It's not. It's not necessarily a a case of uh, you know a slave planet type thing, but really that maybe a large percentage of the population could be wiped out through the through the psychopathic. uh, um, you know, mentality and, and policies that are, that are being implemented by the psychopaths in power. I mean, I mean, I, I don't ascribe to the idea of uh, subscribe to the idea of um, nuclear war because I think they're kind of a bit too smart, at least for that, because that would destroy everything you know that's available to them. So, I'm just wondering if you have any ideas about uh, if we were to go the way of previous civilizations, which appear to have kind of disappeared to a large extent. Um, I mean, do you have any ideas how that might happen for for us? Um, yeah, at, at the same time that the internet is the you know the uh, uh, potential um, or information really, and the dissemination of information is the potential to create a better world and stave off the age of chaos. We the same technology, unfortunately, can be used against us. Um, uh, you know, uh, oh, Joe, I, I, I want to be positive, <laughs> but you know, yeah. when I, when I read about, when I read history, when I read about, you know, uh, <laughs> history during World War II and the first World War and, and the ages before that, and you know, what it is, is, is men come to your door and they take you away and then, and you're never seen again. You know, that's mm. what we can expect. You know, look at what's happening with the police now and the, and the uh, uh, the information system and the spying and things like that. You know, for example, there's a lot of people in the United States that are preppers and uh, and even militia. But you know, my study of history is that uh, in about a week they'll all be gone, and it and and the, and the world will continue, and nobody will ever find out whatever happened to them. Maybe you know, 500 years from now they find some mass graves and they speculate where that came from. But that's how it could go, Joe. You know. It, it could happen mm-hmm. that fast it, within a couple of weeks, um, you know, to decide to pull the trigger and completely clamp down anybody that, uh, you know, showed any signs of making trouble for the psychopaths would be arrested at a three o'clock in the morning raid and shipped off uh, into the gulag system and never to be heard or seen from again. That could happen, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, We've seen it happen before, you know, communist China, communist Russia, all the East European countries, the way they, you know, once the communists took over, you know, they rounded up all the intellectuals and the school teachers. I mean, look what happened in Cambodia, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Argentina, when the dictators took over uh, uh, Chile. Oh, my God, it's over and over and over again. The psychopaths, when they feel that they're going to lose power, they get really dirty and they get dirty really fast. And even more recently in Mexico, they, the 41 uh, college students that the mayor, mm-hmm. you know, ordered the drug cartels to round up, rape, torture, and murder them and burn them in a mass grave. This is what they do, you know, and um, this is why we have to fight. And this is why I get angry because we have the time right now to talk about it. But when they think that their power is slipping, uh, don't think that that won't happen uh, here in the United States or in Canada or in Britain, they'll do exactly the same thing that they did in Cambodia, that they did in Russia, that they did in China, um, that they did in Argentina, and ad infinitum. You know, examine any civilization, that's what they do. And 
uh, if people, uh, um, so that's what I'm worried about. You know that mm. uh, they'll get ugly. That's and will a, they use nukes? Yeah, they'll use nukes. They will. Mm. Well, I mean, talking about you know trying to be positive and stuff about the future. I mean, the only positive outcome I can see is that something changes fundamentally about uh, human society, and psychopaths are effectively removed from their positions and positions, and in some way, or at least exposed. Or yeah, exposed, uh, exposed, and then removed either way. But they're removed and contained, and people no longer allow them to rise to positions of power. But if that is not a possibility, then between your kind of prediction of a, a, a jackboot standing on a, the neck or the, the head of humanity for forever, basically, between that and a kind of an annihilation of most of the population and a restart of the cycle, I'd go for the restart of a cycle. If that's our only option, you know, between a slave planet for forever or if that's what the cycles are for, like you kind of said, they're kind of... Um, uh, a natural process uh, that um, that maybe maybe if there isn't an opportunity to fundamentally change human civilization uh, and get, and deal with this issue of psychopathy among among humans, well then our next best option is a reboot. Yeah, there's an old Chinese uh, idiom that says, "If the roof is rotten, kick it in." And what mm-hmm. it refers to is that some things can't be repaired, that you have to tear it down. And, you know, <laughs> I worked yeah. as a roofer for a while, too. You know, if you uh, see that the roof joints are rotten, you can't just add more shingles to the roof. You have to take the whole roof down and, and rebuild it. And mm-hmm. that may be where we are at. Our society is so rotten. Uh, there is no adding another coat of paint to it. There's no, you know, trying to clean it up a little bit. It might need to be taken down back to its basic foundations and rebuilt uh, fresh and clean from the beginning again. Uh, yeah, I would uh, I would find that a better option than allowing the psychopaths to <laughs> take over. I mean, it's going to collapse one way or the other anyways. What I'm yeah. worried about is that uh, we have our slave planet um, which they've created already, but we are, we allow this slavery to continue for 500 years, and then it collapses. No, better it collapse, we get it over with in five, ten years and rebuild, than let this thing drag out another couple of hundred years of, of misery and slavery until eventually it will collapse anyways. Uh, you know, the psychopaths cannot escape the rules of Mother Nature either, and so mm-hmm. even though they might have their dreams of of, uh, you know, world domination, well, you know, <laughs> good luck, because, uh, yeah. you know, nature d- does not, is not thwarted, the rules of nature mm-hmm. cannot be, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, abused. So, it will come anyway, so, uh, now, mm-hmm. or in a hundred years from now, better now, better now, Let, let's let's bring it down. You know, what... <laughs> bring what it down, it's... No, it's almost like compassionate, compassionate euthanasia, you know, <laughs> for for someone who's suffering, and you know, the yeah. planet is suffering, and and maybe Mother Nature will come in and take pity on uh, when suffering gets too much on a on a on a planet wide basis. You know, I mean, that's not good for anybody, right? No, it, I mean, uh, I'm not too worried about the planet. You know, like with uh, Laura's article, uh, and I'm also uh, what you would call a catastrophist uh, theory of history. I do believe that. Uh, you know, civilization has been wiped out in the past by uh, planetary events. 
you know, uh, or near extinction level events. Well, you know, we we know about the mass extinctions, and uh-huh. um, there were probably minor mass extinctions. And yet, you know, even though 99% of all the species that existed on the planet has gone extinct, um, you know, the planet itself, even if we were to wipe everyone out with a nuclear devastation, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 years from now, life will come again, you know. Um, So I'm not too worried about the planet. Uh, I'm worried about us as a species um, that we might not survive. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. When the suffering on the planet gets too much in terms of the human population and even the animal population, when all of the kind of, you know, let's call them higher level sentient beings, you know, uh, well, even plants are suffering, I suppose, but from plants, animals, humans, when everybody's having a really bad time and it's only going to get worse, um, you would think there would be some kind of a, uh, some kind of a mechanism to, to deal with that before it gets to the point where, you know, I don't know what could happen now. Well, planet could collapse under its own its own weight, you know, of entropy. Yeah, it may be true. You know, uh, I'm not sure about that. To me, it, 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 you know, we'd have to assume, and I I don't know if I do or if I don't, that planet Earth is a conscious entity, and if it is, it may self-regulate itself. It it, it might be that um, uh, you know it will put us out of our misery for us. Uh, uh-huh. if we don't do it ourselves. I'm not sure. It, that could be. It could very well be. But what you're saying is that uh, the people need to change, and I agree. That's why you know I'm doing the videos and mm-hmm. going on radio shows because I'm doing what I can. Everybody needs to do what they can. I, and it's not just that I go on the radio shows. I talk to people on buses. I talk to people in the park. I talk to the cashier at the grocery store. You know, I am spreading this. Uh, you know, I guess I, I, people must think I'm a little bit crazy or obnoxious. Uh, I bring it up in a friendly way, you know. Um, you know, I'll say things like enjoying your slavery today, you know. Um, <laughs> 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 see, if they ask a question and I'll, I'll, I'll get into it. And most people say, yes, we're wage slaves. They all recognize it, you know. Um, but if we can change... But what are you going to do? Uh, but what are you going to do? Well... That's their attitude. Yeah. Yeah. What you're going to do about well, it? Yeah, they're they're kind of complacent, and that's why I want to try and provide you know some sorts of solutions for it. Um, but you know, for example, what I didn't never understood is the divine right of kings. How that ever got started? For example, you read you know the history of Rome, and let's take any of the Roman emperors, but let's take Caligula. You know, it was a perfect example, a lunatic mm-hmm. psychopath, right? And uh, he was you know, caused so many deaths and murders and assassinations and, you know, and suffering and rapes and castrations. And, oh, my God, the guy was a monster. And yet he was surrounded by guys with swords. Now, if only one of these, you know, they they were the German bodyguards at those days, and uh, now they're, they're the Swiss guard for the Pope. But in those days, they were the German bodyguards. But if just one of those German guys said, look, this little psychopath, that's enough of this shit, and took his sword and lopped his head off, it would have put it to an end. Why did mm-hmm. nobody kill this guy? And and I read that throughout, you know, like in the history of, of, of England and, uh, you know, the Hundred Years' War, and there they are about to, you know, when they, when, when they dug up the skeletons to show what these people had to endure in their lifetime, these soldiers, you know, during the Hundred Years' War, the, you know, they had their faces hacked off, and they lived through it, and they went on to fight another battle, you know, and then it's uh, 
for for our king and for England. No, kill that king, chop his head off, and go back home. There's no reason to cross the English Channel and invade France yet again so that the king can have more money and more estates. Why are these people doing that? Why are you fighting for this lunatic? Why are you <laughs> sacrificing and dying for this little psychopath that, you know, so that he can become richer? Where did that come from? It's this weird mental attitude that people have. It's our, you know, our herd instinct or our pack instinct where somebody says, oh, I'm the leader, I'm the king, and then everybody else is ready to throw their, themselves on a sword for him. Why? You know, uh, just say no to these psychopaths. And we see the same thing now with these you know, with the police forces and the militarization and, and, and you know, uh, the seizure of property and, and the beating and the, and the shootings and the rapes and the murders. Oh, my God. Just say no. Say that's it. Nobody is going to join the police force. We all quit en masse and, and nobody with a conscience would ever sign up for that job again. Then where would the elite be? They would have nothing. And the same thing with the military. That's why I always tell people, never, ever join the military. Listen, if some foreign country invades Canada and their troops are marching down my streets killing Canadian people, yes, I will find a rifle. I will, you know, go out there and I'll be sniping these bastards if they're in my backyard. But that has never happened. So there is no reason in the world for any Canadian to join the military because it's never happened and it never will happen because the logistics of invading a country like Canada or the United States from anywhere else in the world is beyond the ability of any civilization to accomplish. It just, you, you can't do that, especially if you know every other American is armed with a rifle. So there's no reason in the world to join the military. We've got to get people to to quit, to to desert, to uh, uh, stop signing up for these positions. And without a military and without a police force, all these psychopaths would have no power. And therefore, all their schemes of world domination would come to an end instantly. And so that's one solution. Stay away from the military. Mm -hmm. Stay away from law enforcement. Don't get involved. And if you yeah. are involved and the order comes down, by the way, uh, there's some protesters, go there and shoot them. Refuse your orders. You know, uh, it wasn't a defense during the Nuremberg trials when, 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 when they, you know, uh, staged all these uh, phony charges against all these poor German guys. And, and they said, well, we were following orders. Uh, yeah, but that's no defense. That's right. It is no defense because you have a conscience. And just like it was no defense for those German soldiers, so it's no defense for Canadian soldiers or American soldiers or English soldiers. You have no defense. You go over to Iraq and you start killing people. That's on your conscience. Never mind you were following orders. You're a human being. You're a thinking person. That's on your conscience. And never mind the, the police captain says, go over there and, and uh, let's uh, uh, pepper spray and uh, beat the shit out of all these uh, demonstrators. Uh, no, that's no defense that you were given the order by your captain. You're going out there and you are physically beating people uh, with, with your baton. That karma is on your head. That responsibility is on your head. And if you don't refuse that order, you're culpable. Yeah, yeah. take, take, take. Take responsibility for your actions. We can't defer 
morality to a higher authority. Each human being is responsible for their own individual actions on this planet, and you have to live according to uh, 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 your own morality, uh, the ethics of a civilization, not the ethics of a bunch of psychopaths. Amen. And yet, part of why we're having this conversation is that we don't live in such a civilization. The mind virus you've described has taken hold of such people who might otherwise follow their conscience. But if there's a silver lining from the, the inevitability of the, the cycles you describe, particularly that it will inevitably end up in some form of chaos before something reemerges, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. You, you've touched on the repeated theme of pockets of survivors and or pockets of people who band together in the midst of the chaos, forming or retreating into monasteries. Is this really a recurring theme at all these stages in history? Absolutely. It, it is a recurring yeah. theme. And even in the uh, science fiction story, uh, by Isaac Asimov, the Foundation Triology, what the uh, main protagonist, the one that figured out the mathematical formula to predict the future, what he did was he sent out um, colonies of people to establish uh, uh, basically a monastic type of system. He sent out colonies to the far reaches of the uh, galaxy where they would be far away from the the worst of the collapse and where they would preserve the knowledge uh, throughout the Dark Ages so that uh, once the collapse is finished, they could reemerge from their colonies and rebuild the universe. Well, you know, that has happened many times in history. Uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, the monastic system was able relatively, because, you know, they went through the Dark Ages and... and you know, Maybe they weren't as brutal as we think they were. There's some you know, more recent research that suggests that things weren't as horrible as uh, we are led to believe. But listen, um, it was still pretty awful, the Dark Ages. And so during yeah. the Dark Ages, um, you know, <laughs> it took another, uh, another 2,000 years before they invented flush toilets again. You know? So <laughs> to me, that's pretty dark. Uh, but mm -hmm. during the Dark Ages, while the rest of the people suffered with disease and poverty and, and uh, cruelty and endless strife, the monasteries were relatively unscathed by this. And uh, they formed, you know, kind of economic communities. Um, you know, they would, uh, they would have the, the markets would be in the monastery where people could exchange goods through barter. Uh, they established small businesses like winemaking and uh, and sheep farming and, and, and wool spinning. And uh, also they preserved um, most of the knowledge that we have. I have to hand it to those monks. Um, they were the ones that preserved as much as possible the, uh, the writings of the ancient Roman and Greek philosophers and the histories uh, by, you know, recopying the manuscripts and the parchments and, and, uh, yeah. and, and maintaining a, a library system. So thanks to that, we have some knowledge, and thanks to that, and of course, the, uh, the Muslims who preserved uh, probably most of ancient Greek uh, uh, philosophy in their libraries. Uh, so compared to, you know, the, the poverty and horror of the Dark Ages, the monasteries were relatively more, you know, at least you could learn to read there. There was nowhere else 
in the world at that time that would teach you how to read, um, you know, they had some sort of an economy and, and, and a medical system. Um, so that seems to have worked, you know, sort of all right for Europe after the fall of Rome. If we go to the uh, to uh, uh, China and the Middle East, um, you know, it was the Buddhist monasteries that kind of remained unscathed during the various dynastic cycle collapses because uh, the best example of historical cycles can be found in Chinese history where you see the dynasty rise and fall, rise and fall uh, 68 times, you know, and each time they fell, there was a period of chaos in between. Sometimes it lasted 10 years, sometimes it lasted 100 years, but then a new dynasty would come again. But during all of that, it, it was, again, these monasteries that preserved the writings of the Buddha, that, uh, you know, maintained gardens and, and, uh, uh, and you know, micro-economies. So when, for the future, in order to get through the age of chaos, um, one of the solutions would definitely be a monastic system. Now, what do I mean by monastic? What I mean is autonomous communities. You can call them colonies, colonies in the wilderness, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in the wilderness. A colony could be established within a city. But what you need is a group of like-minded people, no more than, say, 50 to 100, that will work together and pool their resources and pool their, uh, uh, their knowledge and become as much as possible self-sufficient and detached from the, uh, the, the, the mechanism of the empire or the, 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 uh, the state. If you can separate yourself and you're not as dependent on the empire, then when the empire falls, it won't affect you as much because you aren't dependent on them. Now, you know, for example, in the United States now, I think when they have, what is it, like 150 million people on food stamps, um, when the monetary system collapses, and I'm pretty sure it will collapse. That's usually what happens during a period of chaos. Um, and yeah. they're no longer able to get their food stamps. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to starve. But before they starve, they will uh, loot and rob. And mm-hmm. then once uh, there's nothing left to loot and rob, then they will definitely starve. And they will die by the tens of thousands. So if you have a community that works together and says, you know, we have our uh, our secret little uh, uh, garden patch hidden in the woods, you know, and we'll all take turns tending it and, and, and preserving it, and and uh, we'll take turns guarding it, and uh, we'll help each other out, and we'll move in together, and we'll share the functions so that we no longer need food stamps, we no longer need grocery stores, we no longer need uh, the medical system, which is you know the illness system, really. Uh, we'll, we'll take care of our own health and our own food and our own shelter. Then when you know the monetary system collapses, well, you won't be as hard hit because you weren't dependent on them in the first place. So then your greatest concern is to stay below the radar of the looters long enough so that once, you know, everybody else is starved to death, then it'll be safer again. And um, you already have the means to establish a new civilization. Yeah. I mean, such communities to survive such times would face hard choices, but in the course of it, they become 
as warriors with a higher ethics, higher skill levels and so on, and therefore are ready to essentially seed the new warrior age. Yeah. And, and, Something and like that. It will be hard choices. Yeah, it will be hard choices. Yeah. And, and we have to precede the warrior age. We have to anticipate it by becoming warriors now. And, and, and that's, again, one of my, you know, my offered solutions to the, the current turmoil. Other than, you know, what happens <coughs> with the police and the military is that the parasites, the psychopaths, appeal to a man's warrior ethic. Young men, you know, when they're full of testosterone, they want to be the knight in shining ar- armor. Uh, I was like that when I was young. I almost thought of uh, going to military school myself. Uh, and I studied martial arts for, for 40 years and uh, continued to practice it because I love the ethic of being a warrior, of being a man, of defending right from wrong and, and justice and truth. And, you know, and uh, that's, what, that's how they sell kids on the military and that's how they sell kids on the police. Of course, once they've joined up, that's all turned on its head. But those principles are still valid, and we need to adapt or adopt those principles for ourselves now. We have to be brave. Um, you know, uh, facing the reality of what's coming is very scary. So we have to face our fears, and in order to face your fear, you have to be a warrior because that's what warriors are. They're courageous. So tell me the truth, doctor. Give it to me square. You know, I need to know what it is. And I'm man enough to take the truth and then work from it there. You know, so we need to adopt the warrior ethic. And hard choices, you know, yeah, I was um, talking about, you know, everybody, the need for everybody to be prepared for a disaster because. I can't tell the average Canadian that they need to get ready for the age of chaos because they're not able to hear it right now. Um, they're still too zombified. They won't get that message. So I can't save them using that message, but I can save them using the message of get ready for a disaster. So, you know, what I'm doing locally is I'm teaching disaster preparedness and I'm using it under the ruse under the facade that you should be prepared in case there's a natural disaster, which, listen, first of all, it's a good idea to be prepared for a natural disaster anyways. Everybody should be prepared for that. But really what I'm trying to do is if people are prepared for a natural disaster, they'll be better able to deal with an age of chaos and they'll have a better chance of surviving the age of chaos. So even though I'm not telling them Listen, you know, I have this theory about historical cycles. Things might get really bad. Uh, let's put three months' worth of food aside. They can't mm. hear that message, right? They can't hear yeah. it. But yeah. But I tell them, well, you know, global warming, which I don't believe in, but they do hear, you know, we're all libtards here in Canada. We're <laughs> Marxist-Leninist society here. Everybody believes everything that's liberal and left. So global warming... <laughs> Um, more natural disasters, let's put three months' food aside in case of a natural disaster. That they can hear, which is fine, because the end result will be the same. They will have food and supplies that will help them during the age of chaos. Now, uh, some of them said, oh, (laughs) well, listen, you know, if uh, there's a a big snowstorm, we'll all come to your house. Well, yeah, I get really quiet at that point because 
the trouble is when the age of chaos comes, and you've already heard the message from me, and I've already warned you about it, and not about the age of chaos. I warned you about, listen, if there's a snowstorm and you're you're stuck indoors for three weeks, you know, have three weeks' worth of supply of food. If you can't even do that, you think you're going to come to my door and I'm going to bring you in and start feeding you my reserves? No bloody way. It's not going to happen. So those mm-hmm. are the hard choices. Now, I like these people, but I'm not going to feed them. I'm not. I can't because I would be sacrificing myself. So I'm not going to kill myself to help people that didn't try to help themselves to begin with and now are dependent on me. And that's a hard choice. I wouldn't want to do it. I don't want to have to, you know, it's the the old lifeboat analogy. Who do you throw out of the lifeboat? Um, but that's what it's going to boil down to. And you're going to have to be tough and say no, uh, unless they bring something to the table. Uh, if they come to my door and say, listen, I've got two weeks supply of food, but I also have a lot of medical gear um, and, and, and a year's supply of antibiotics, I'll go, listen, we can work together, you know. But if you come mm. to my door, I got nothing. I got no food. I got no medicine. I got no skills. I got no training. What do I need you for? You know, exactly. You. I'm sorry, you know, and that's a hard choice. Yeah, I mean, people who come with nothing or to show no initiative and don't look at the, the world around them and prepare in some way, uh, I mean, they're not the kind of people you'd want in a kind of a small community of, you know, survivors or whatever you want to call it, because, I mean, they have no track record of actually uh, doing what will be needed to do under those yeah. conditions, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, in, my, in my, my plan that I have for people, what I say is, what I will do during an age of chaos is I will tithe 10%. You know, just as people give 10% to their church of their income, if there's an age of chaos and there are children starving in the street, I will take 10% of what I have and I will go and, you know, make some soup or some stew and feed it to the people there. Whatever it is I can do, I will provide 10% from what I have. And I will give it to people that weren't prepared. I'm willing to do that. I think it's only fair that those of us that, you know, did wake up and did get some preparations together that we're not going to be 100% selfish and hole up behind our communities and not do anything. Now, I'm not going to invite them to come live with me, but I will go out into a street and I will bring, you know, loaves of bread or fresh fruit and vegetables, whatever I have. I will bring 10% of my food supplies and I will disseminate it to the most needy. And that's my pledge to humanity at this point. Yeah. Um, are you... I'll maintain anonymity. They're, they won't know where I got <clears throat> it from and they won't know where I live. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to be. Yeah. you got to be prudent in that respect. But, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about uh, in terms of the situation you're describing, chaos, social chaos, uh, it seems to me that we probably worse than uh, in built-up areas, in major cities, major urban areas. We have a lot of people all depending on what might then be limited resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you... Yeah. Do you have any... Well, I do. Ideas about that? Yes, I do. And and also, it, it goes right back to um, the, uh, the the science fiction story in the uh, in the in the in the novel, The Foundation. Um, there was always one colony that the other colonies could never figure out where they were because what uh, 
what the, what the Harry Seldon, the main protagonist, did was when he sent out the colonies, he said, well, you can't be in touch with each other because if one colony gets found out, then you know the evil powers that be would then find out the other colonies and, and take them over. So they were all autonomous and they didn't know about where each of them were. And there was one colony that nobody could ever figure out where it was, and that was back in the heart of the evil empire in the capital city. It simply went underground. So I do think that it's possible to go underground within the city. Also, the idea that we're, the country will be better off, our people will be better off in the country, um, that doesn't turn out to be uh, uh, true from my study of history. A lot of the times when, when uh, for example, here in the United States and, and Canada, um, in the prepper community or the survivalist community, the idea is that if things get bad, everybody will you know, pack their gear into the truck and drive out to the country. Um, there are so many things wrong with that scenario uh, that it's unlikely to ever succeed. Uh, first of all, you're probably not going to be able to get out of the city. The, the roads will be shut off uh, from traffic alone. If they're not shut off from traffic, they'll be shut off by military checkpoints. They're not going to allow a bunch of people with food and guns to run out of the city. They'll, they'll be waiting at the main arteries uh, and exits of every, every highway out of the city, and they'll confiscate everything that people have. Um, <laughs> why? Why do I say that? Because that's what they always did. That's what every other you know, t dictatorial, totalitarian government did. When people tried to escape to the country... They knew that. They were waiting. They were waiting at the side road. They were waiting on the country roads there with their police checkpoints. Uh, they picked those people up, and uh, they took what they had, mm -hmm. and they marched them off into the woods, and that was the last they ever saw of them. Um, the same thing with uh, in Cambodia. You know, they evacuated the cities, and they sent everybody out to the countryside. Well, uh, you know, because why? In the countryside, um, they can do what they want to the population. They're they're, they're, they're uprooted, they're scattered. So I don't think it's always a great idea to think that we're going to you know, go to the country and, and live there. You can do that if you have a lot of money and a lot of preparation before time. For example, um, if you have the money to buy some acreage and a farm and, and start to you know, upgrade that farm so that it runs on solar and wind and, and uh, even possibly water if you have you know, flowing water on the, on the acreage and uh, green garden, uh, greenhouses and hydroponic systems and, and uh, uh, aquaponics and you set that all up and you still are able to disguise your property so that on the outside, it looks dilapidated. You know, um, you don't want modern buildings on there. You don't want something that had a paint job in the last ten years. It needs to be look like it's already been looted. Then there's a pretty good chance for you to survive. Um, but uh, those communities that go to the countryside and are successful for a while, they are quickly and easily targeted by looters and uh, first they'll be targeted by the government and if there's anything left after that the looters will come in so it's not always the best answer to go out to the country and and, and try and live on a farm I, I i would do it if i had the money i would still try it because it's probably a better solution than than uh, staying where you are in the city um, but i don't have the money and i don't i can't afford a, a farm and the equipment and because the other thing about moving to the country is there's no jobs there. 
uh, you know, unless you're willing to commute four hours a day to the city to for a job, how are you going to fund your lifestyle out there? You can't fund it right now. So there's a lot of reasons why it's really impractical at this point <clears throat> to retire to a monastery in the countryside, and a lot of reasons why they would be targeted. So the best thing, well, not the best, the lesser of evils, I would say, is to be prepared to go underground where you are now, which is micro-economies, micro-farming. And a community can be organized that doesn't necessarily have to live together in a big compound, but work, cooperate together. So you can have people in a neighborhood that you know each of them have has their own home. Uh, they don't all need to move in together into a warehouse or something like that. But if they can still cooperate with amongst themselves and keep a low profile the whole time. Uh, for example, one house will have a garden and the other house will have hydroponic in the basement and another house will, uh, you know, distill uh, alcohol from, from uh, and so that you can run a car on, on alcohol or, or a diesel car. And another home will, you know, have a herb garden for medicinal herbs and they all cooperate and exchange those goods you could survive just as well or uh, recreate the the strategy of a uh, commune in the countryside. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Stefan, I'm just going to check. We might have a call on the line here. Sure. Hi, do we have a caller on the line? Uh, hello? Maybe not. Phantom call. Phantom call. It's a zombie. Yeah. Well, you've been having technical <laughs> trouble all day, so... Uh, we have, yeah. Let me, yeah. 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 Oh. Do you have a call on this line? Hi, who's that? Hi there. Hey there, this is Drew again. Hi, Drew. Welcome to the, the The potentially dead city of Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Welcome to the show. What, what, what have you got to say for yourself from Los Angeles? Well, I've been listening to your uh, your guest, Stephen. I, I assume that's his name, Stephen? Uh, Stephen. 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 I, uh, and I, I assume from your discussion that you live in the, uh, the Queen's Colony of Canada. Yes, I do, but I used to live in Southern California for the last 12, 13 years. Ah. I just moved back to Canada. Oh, from the frying pan into the fire. Well, I say I went from uh, Hitler's uh, fascist Germany to uh, Stalin's communist Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to, I don't know. Maybe I should, in terms of uh, trying to get the topic off of how to survive the economic collapse, um, the discussion should be about, okay, how do we get the countries to join with the BRICS organization, which is something that has now overthrown the primitive accumulation of the old monetarist system that we've been under for the last, I don't know, 50 years since they murdered the Bretton Woods system. Right. Are you aware of the BRICS, though? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you know that that's based on the much better concept of nations cooperating with each other instead of this old British Empire model of uh, it's our right to go out and loot you and kill you and and so forth. Exactly, yeah. I mean, um, have you thought about organizing 
that Canada has to join the BRICS as a community of nations instead of just saying, well, I can't do anything. Canada is hopeless. And so, therefore, I'll just have to let everybody just go to hell. No, you know, Drew, I don't want to see everybody go to hell. And, and, and that's why I'm doing everything I can to, you know, try to raise awareness and to offer solutions. I agree. Um, you know, within the alternative media movement, I noticed that there's a lot of infighting. You know, we're all um, accusing everybody else of being a disinfo in agent or a co-intel pro agent and, and um, or this system won't work and that system won't work. And you know what? Anything that removes the power from the current regime is good in my book. So I would support the BRICS system, absolutely. Do I think it's the solution? I don't know. I, I, I would be very happy if it was, um, but I would definitely support it. Anything that can take away their power, bring back the Bretton Woods Agreement, absolutely. Uh, go back to a gold standard, possibly. Um, so well, it actually does work because Canada, China in particular, uh, if, you, if you Google what they're building, since they've adopted the sort of American system model of political economy, uh, you might notice that they've gone on a, a gigantic, massive building program. Oh, yeah. Right. And bringing other countries in, in terms of what India is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the process ongoing. And countries that were formerly, you might say, puppets of the United States and the Britain or and and the Queen are now suddenly saying, um, maybe that way is kind of stupid. Uh, maybe we should, right? You see that tendency of countries like the Philippines that were formerly just puppets of the United States saying, well, let's rethink this. You know, this is kind of stupid. Uh, look at all this economic activity going on. You know, maybe it'd be a little better to go this way. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Right, so you do have that process undergoing, and that is the potential. Yeah, I, I support anything that would, you know, uh, attack the current uh, system. Um, so well, it is bankrupt. I mean, you have yeah. that as your potential, that they are bankrupt, and they are desperate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I used to uh, live in China, and uh, actually I, I toured China with a group of venture capitalists, and uh, we went to see all these, you know, uh, these, these, they built cities from the ground up, you know, this massive construction and, and these condos, and uh, yeah, so I've seen it firsthand. I, I know what they're doing over there. Um, uh, so, you know, but I'm not so sure... Are you just pessimistic about Canadians in general that they're asleep and so forth? Well, Canadians are really passive, and uh, and it's not our fault. We've been, you know, it's it's a cold country, you know, for much of the year, and it's it's you know we 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 never locked our doors. When I grew up, the murder rate in Toronto was one or two people a year, you know, compared to like uh, uh, two hundred on a weekend in Chicago. Uh, we've always been very peaceful. We, we've never had a lot of crime. We've never had a lot of, you know, what we could perceive as government corruption when when we were younger, uh, and and that has still stayed with us. But it's made us 
pretty complacent. Mind you, I talk to Americans, uh, people in the American alternative media, and people that have woken up, so to speak. And I, and I don't like the term wake up because it sounds a little bit condescending. I'm awake, you're asleep, I'm superior. Um, but become aware of this subject matter. And they tell me that Americans are, are even worse than Canadians. And then I speak to people in Australia, and they tell me the Australians are far worse than the Canadians in, in terms of... Uh, Anyways, you know, the general mass of humanity is, uh, you know, unaware of the seriousness of the situation. And uh, and I think they're resistant to uh, uh, realizing it for a number of reasons. It, it's not pleasant, you know. It's uh, avoidance of fear, avoidance of uncertainty. Even though we know there is nothing certain in life, we still cling to the kind of illusion that uh, the current system will provide what it has provided in the past. So, uh, yeah, I'm pessimistic, yes and no. Uh, I'm still hoping that uh, we get a, enough people uh, to create a, like what's called a bifurcation point, a certain uh, weight where uh, once, you know, the 100 monkey uh, analogy, once uh, 100 monkeys have learned it, then all the monkeys will learn it. Um, and the BRICS movement, but I, I'll be honest with you, Drew, I, I really think that the only reason that these uh, countries, the BRICS countries, are moving away from the American Anglo, uh, uh, Anglo-American Anglo financial system is not because they're going to do the right thing, but because the psychopaths in charge of their respective countries have a are seeing the same things that I'm seeing, which is that they know the U.S. dollar is going to collapse, and um, they want to distance themselves now from the barrel um, so that their countries and they themselves, the psychopaths in charge, won't be as... No, no. Well, uh, China's President Xi explicitly offered the United States to join with it instead of this uh, geopolitical pivot which targets China simply because they are acting in an independent manner, right? Right. Right, but, uh, uh, but, but the concept Drew, is based on John Quincy Adams and a concert of nations. Yeah, John Quincy Adams, uh, yeah. Right, and they have a very future-oriented outlook in terms of bringing countries in, cooperative development, so there is that. Yeah, so but I understand that. Yeah, from where you are, it might be or might seem that pessimistic. Well, so far, Drew, you, yeah, Drew, you think that China is going to be able to bring the United States into a new regime that would what immediately transform the reality of the United States, which is that it is ruled by the most concentrated bunch of psychopaths on the planet. It's, it's not queen. going to be. A, the queen. Well, I know. I'm a political organizer, so. Well, I'm a political organizer, so. I'm aware that. It, it, it all stems from the Queen of England. I'm afraid it's not that simple. I, I, it would be nice if it could be that simple. If we just cut off the Queen's head, the rest of the hive will be fine. We don't <laughs> actually have any objective view of it that it is even just the Queen of England who has the United States, for example, under his thumb. This is a symbiotic relationship between the elites of these two countries and other countries. It's not just even as simple as an Anglo-American empire. If we have, I mean, BRICS, for example, there will be multiple 
cross-purposes at work behind the various groups in each of the countries involved in BRICS. I, I can't see, as yet, I could never see Russia's interest being the same, for example. It's quite close to China's. I mean, they seem to be cooperating in many ways. But then what of Brazil? Is that... It, it, this is still theoretical, you understand? We're still living in a system that is still the basic petrodollar Anglo-American financial system. Right, it's, and there are moves you, to get, you, out, get away from... On, yeah, you, it would be nice to have something that we yeah, could so hold up as an alternative. But. Yeah, I mean, we can try and get away from that, and we should get away from that, and I think, I hope that is what's going to happen. But I would say that in that scenario... Uh, you might, we might find ourselves in a situation where the Anglo-American empire essentially says, well, if we're going down, we're taking as many people with us as possible, and they screw the, screw the entire planet up. You know what I mean? That's yep, they, not are a, a, yeah, they are doing so that, actually. They are doing that. So we don't know what future there might be for a new kind of uh, utopian uh, BRICS-dominated uh, uh, you know, economic system, uh, global economic system. So, I mean, that's all a bit premature, as Neil's saying. And uh, The end result would be the same. It would be the chaos stage of this cycle, you see? Even yeah, if even if there was a beautiful alternative that at, that the death was presented to humanity, there's going to be, pain, there's gonna be a lot of pain involved in getting there. Yeah, one way or another. They're not going to let go of their position, their hegemonic position, um, easily. I know. We see, it, for we for dealing with something like asteroids, which I've seen on your site, mm -hmm. which is useful, mm -hmm. it would require the U.S., Russia collaborate on something of that nature of dealing with these astronomical aspects which do affect threat life threat here on the planet. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But And that's not going to happen because psychopaths basically don't really care about the future. They don't really envision the future. They can't see the future. They live in the moment uh, for what they can get from the moment right now, uh, fulfilling their goals, their their needs, their desires, which are all pretty much destructive and insatiably greedy. So these people are, they're a lost cause. These people are just a dead end, you know. And if they are allowed to continue in positions of power, then it's a dead end for everybody. I know. Then uh, that difficulty is not organizing a new system out of the wreckage of this old system. That's the bigger trick because of dealing with idiots in elected officials who, to reflect that uh, the thinking of just going along to get along, that's always... Yeah, yeah but Drew, look at what happened in the midterm elections. 96% of the incumbents were voted back in. You know, so <laughs> at the very least, what Americans should be doing is voting out every incumbent <sighs> And yet 96% of them are back in there. So, listen, I, I, I believe and I support uh, your work in, in, in political organizing. Uh, I support anybody's work in, in uh, raising awareness, either politically or financially. Um, anything we can all do, there are so many avenues at which we can attack the, uh, the psychopathic structure right now. For me personally, I am I'm, I'm right at the basics of life, um, basic survival. So for me, my approach is to get people to prepare themselves for bad yeah. times by uh, stockpiling food and medicine and getting some first aid skills, getting some security skills, uh, learning communications, 
learning some spy craft, learn how to go underground, learn how to lose a tail, how to avoid security cameras, learn how to be a chameleon, uh, impersonate people, uh, disguise. Strategic. Mm -hmm. Being strategic. You know, for me, it's live to see tomorrow. I'm right down at that level right now. Uh, For me, personally, spending my time and energy on uh, political movements or protests or demonstrations, um, it, it's not for me right now because, uh, um, you know, I don't think it's it, it's too little too late, you know, for me, or, or in my opinion. So the way I'm approaching it, and and again, I encourage you to do what you're doing and, and you know, good for you. But for me personally, I'm, I'm at a life and death uh, uh level right now i'm mm. trying to personally before it comes uh you save as many people because you know the sheep are, i you know yeah they they're unaware and they're not awake and all this kind of but they're not bad people they're husbands and 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 wives and children and um you know there's okay so they're they're not uh on on the on the bandwagon they're not in the same uh, uh, level of awareness that you and I and, and many other people are. So they need to be tortured and and and, and starved to death. They they need to eat their 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 pets. Uh, you know, um, no, I don't want to see that happen to them either. So at my 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 approach is simply to get people to work on that level, life and death, uh, survive another day, and then maybe we can build a better future. But that doesn't mean I don't support. Mass movements and protests. Uh, my one of my most yeah. recent articles is uh, how to sue, uh, stay safe during a, during a protest <laughs> rally. You mm-hmm. know things that you should bring when you're uh, going out uh, exercising your uh, First Amendment amendment rights. You know, like uh, uh, extra food and water, a med kit, a telephone, uh, your, your lawyer's information, things like that. So I do support the uh, We Are Change movement, the Occupy movement, every kind of a movement, the peace movement. I'm absolutely in full support of those people. I'm in full support of uh, political change and political action and activism. My personal work on this problem is really the basic level of uh, enough food and medicine so that you can live long enough to outlive the bastards in charge. That's what I'm hoping for, you know, because these guys end up dying off anyways. They kill themselves. It's like I said in the video with the Chinese dynasties, um, they all died in the end. All the emperors, all the aristocrats, all the great families, the huge wealthy families, and the, they all went in the end too. Usually they were killed off by the people they hired to protect them. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the same thing. You know, like the current government is hiring all these psychopathic cops to, uh, 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 you know, and, 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 and militia and, and contractors and mercenaries to protect them and kill everybody else. But it doesn't take too long before these psychopathic mercenaries say, listen, I can just as easily pull a bu- bullet in this asshole's head and take his stuff as I can put yeah. a bullet in the demonstrator's head. And that's how it happens. These psychopaths mm-hmm. kill themselves off. What I'm hoping to do with my own humble efforts on this, and and it's 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 very little what I'm doing, but it's it's all I can do right now. But what I'm hoping is that I, I can get enough decent, honest, hardworking people to live long enough so that once these psychopaths have killed themselves off or so gravely weakened themselves through internecine combat and intergroup rivalry that they no longer have enough power to 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 suppress the rest of us. 
that the good people that survived through this time are now the dominant people, and, and, and that's where a new civilization comes. But, Drew, keep doing what you're doing. I support you. Good on you, man. Yeah, okay, so just keep, don't, uh, just don't, leave out, don't leave out the role of humor in terms of Cervantes and those kind of people who poked fun at the stupidity of people. That, oh, absolutely. My right, favorite yeah. author is, is uh, <laughs> Mark Twain. I, I love Mark Twain. I'm, there's a guy that had humor, Bill Hicks. You know, spread Bill Hicks around. He, the poor yeah. guy. What a hero. These people, uh, George Carlin. Uh, another great comedian that told the truth yeah. and made people laugh and think at the same time. Absolutely, humor. Yeah. Well, in terms uh, of these uh, past authors who created renaissances, how do I they did by poking fun at people's stupidity? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, idea. guys. Thanks a lot. See you all later. Thanks for your call. All right, take it easy. Thank you, Drew. Bye right. bye. <laughs> um, we let me just check. We may have one more. Do we have another call on the line? Yeah, hi, this is uh, Kent from West Virginia. I have a couple of comments. Uh, first of all, I don't think anybody hi, in the American government... How you doing? I don't think anybody in the American government of today cares anything what um, uh, John Quincy Adams said or wrote, so that's the first thing off the bat. He, he was talking about boots on the ground. Well, it's gone up a notch. I um, do happen to listen to the CBC Sunday edition in the mornings. Everyone. Sometimes there's good interviews, uh, John Cleese last week and so on and so forth. But just this morning, I was very disturbed when I turned it on this morning, is that there's a raging debate now in uh, the parliament up there about whether, you know, they've got this problem. They've got, it's illegal for them to go over and fly and drop bombs in these foreign countries, whereas down, down south here, down in the good old USA, well, they've passed a law that makes it legal for them to, you know, to, to go and bomb foreign countries for whatever reason. So there, there's a debate now, not only boots on the ground, there's a debate on, and it's not a declaration of war, it's a debate on whether it should be legal to, or to cease making it illegal to go bomb foreign countries. So it's gone up a notch. And he was talking about kings, and uh, I, some, somewhere recently, maybe it was in conjunction with, was it Richard II or Third that found the body or something? Anyway, I was, saw something recently about, you know, Back in the days when the kings actually led the charge in the battles, I heard something that said, well, if, you know, uh, when the king, if your king got killed, one of the kings got killed, everybody dropped swords and went home. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I thought that was pretty interesting, you know. So just a couple mm. of comments I'll throw in. So, all right, well, thanks. Great show. All right. Thanks, Kate. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah, well, that's, I, th- I think he was... Um I think Stephen Kent was talking about uh, that uh, reference to kings was an analogy to to what you were describing, which is, you know, that um, if you kind of, you know, that, that that maybe what he was saying was that people would just leave basically when the king gets killed, they people just drop swords and, and take off, and that's an analogy for maybe when the psychopaths, um, like you were suggesting, would kind of kill each other off, um, then people would finally kind of. Uh, Get a clue about just get on with life. For, well, yeah, but being forced into battle for for some idiot, you know, on a horse and a crown on his head, you know. Yeah, I, I think he's talking about Richard II, who was made infamous with Shakespeare's plays uh, for murdering the two princes and things like that. And uh, yeah, they found his body in the uh, in a parking lot they were excavating. And uh, yes, he's absolutely right. In in 
ancient warfare when the king fell, usually his side would abandon the field. Uh, a typical example was with uh, Alexander the Great when he was up against, um, oh, what was it, not Xerxes, um, 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 oh, the name escapes me, uh, the Persians. And uh, the Persian king fled the field because uh, Alexander the Great uh, sent a, a cavalry charge directly at the king's position. He panicked and fled the field, and then the entire Persian army followed suit, even though they outnumbered the Greeks something like 100 to 1. So if you can take out the head, yeah, the, the rest tend to fall. Um, another example is in a uh, – oh, we only got, about, what, five minutes left, eh? Mm -hmm. I'll make it quick. There is a documentary called The uh, uh, Stress, the, the, the Silent Killer, and it's a great documentary. It's, it's National Geographic. So watch that, and it's a study of a baboon tribe in Africa, and the anthropologist that was uh, uh, studying the baboons uh, basically stated that baboons are pretty awful creatures. They're, they, they have a hierarchical structure. The uh, dominant baboons beat and uh, abuse the uh, subdominant uh, baboons, and they in turn beat and abuse the, uh, the ones subordinate to them up and down the chain. And he found that the, the baboons at the lowest level of their hierarchical structure had the greatest amount of stress and the greatest amount of heart disease. Um, so it's irrelevant about what food you eat. It wasn't that they were eating more buttery popcorn or something like that. It was specifically the stress that killed them uh, and caused those diseases. And the stress caused by being abused by dominant baboons in their own tribe. But what happened with this uh, uh, tribe of baboons he was studying was they got into some medical waste uh, that was dumped in the local dump where they're eating. And the dominant baboons, of course, always have the first pick of the food. Mm -hmm. So the dominant baboons ate all the diseased waste products and they all died off. And what happened was after the dominant baboons died off, the remaining troop, not a tribe, it's a troop, the remaining baboon troop stopped abusing each other and their stress was was reduced and they stopped dying of heart disease. So this was a, an accident where all the dominant baboons, let's call them the psychopath baboons, the ones, mm -hmm. the elite at the top that would beat everyone below them and cause all the stress. When they were removed, the troop returned to a more cooperative uh, community. There was more grooming behavior and there was no more uh, beating the females and the females beating the youngsters. All of that stopped once the dominant baboons were removed. So this is my hope for society. If we can remove these psychopaths and we can remove them by simply not obeying their orders, that's all we have to do. Don't listen to them. Don't do what they tell us to do. And that would be the same as killing them because they would still, they would have no power. And if we can mm -hmm. remove that power by disobeying the dictates of the regime, then the society would return to a more idyllic uh, uh, community. Absolutely. Very well said. Um, Stefan, uh, thanks a million for being on. We're going to probably leave it here for this week. Um, I just want to say to our listeners that um, they should check out your recent article, Historical Cycles, Are We Doomed to Repeat the Past? It's uh, 
It's in the Trends Journal, and it's also made into a, a little video on YouTube with a more concise version on, on YouTube. And Stefan is also the author of six books. Uh, maybe the, for uh, in terms of what we're talking about here, The Art of Urban Survival is probably the most relevant one, unless I'm wrong there, Stefan. Yeah, the art of urban survival. It's it's it's, it's a like a Boy Scout manual for adults, but it will get you through what's coming. You know, crime, yeah. corruption, uh, natural disasters. How to prepare? How to put together a search and rescue team? How to build shelters? Things like that. And but also mm-hmm. how to uh, escape and evade. How to escape from a prison? How to go underground? Camouflage? Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. So it's yeah. a um, survival in the big city during the collapse. 101. Excellent. Yeah, so check out Stefan Stefan Verstappen on, you can check him out on YouTube, on his, his website is chinastrategies.com and you're on Facebook as well, so people can check you out there. Sure. All right, Stefan, thanks a million. It was thanks great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. And we'll no problem. There. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Um, yeah. Have you got anything else to say this week, Neil? I really enjoyed that. It was good. Yeah, Stefan's a good speaker, and he has a lot of very interesting stories. He's a great way of um, kind of describing situations with uh, kind of analogies or stories. And he's obviously done quite a bit of research into historical cycles aspect of it. And yeah, straight to um, the point. I mean, nobody knows what the future holds, but it ain't looking good. No, and neither does he. But he's not saying here's the black and white. No, but it ain't looking good. But he's saying look at reality as it is now just look at it yeah and if we look at what's going on things are changing things are in chaos I I mean talking about moving into the age of chaos I think we're right in the middle of it or towards the end of it yeah he's interesting he's saying that he teaches classes and courses where he is to people under the guise of um, it could be an economic catastrophe hits the city and there's a, a three week food supply but really what he has in mind is a natural disaster. Well, those people saying back to him, but what are you talking about? We're not going to be without food for three weeks. Uh, look at what's happening to the weather. I mean, I know. the snow in the U.S. is melting, I believe. But when you get six feet of snow in November in Buffalo and it doesn't melt and it stays and you get more feet on top of it, uh-huh. 13 people died in that city yeah. in good times. Yeah. They could be locked in and there'd be no food in or out for months. Yeah. So those, those those very scenarios are upon us, at least at local levels. They could happen region wide mm-hmm. soon. It could expand out to to regional wide, yeah, and then that's when it gets hairy for well, because so many more people are uh, yeah are are implicated. Um, I mean, maybe I don't know. There's just a few items in the news caught my caught my eye this week. Um, one from today, there was a suicide bomber in East Afghanistan that killed at least 45 people at a volleyball match. But the actual blurb on the BBC News website was that, okay, Afghanistan suicide bomber kills 45 people at volleyball match as Afghan MPs approve security deals with NATO and the US. As NATO and US are trying to broker security deals, i.e., Who's going to militarily control your your gov- your your country by uh-huh. uh, arms sales, etc.? There just so happens to be a suicide bomber to remind these Afghan politicians yeah. who are meeting with their U.S. Uh, and NATO counterparts. For these weapons. psychos, that's called rubber stamping a deal. Yeah, exactly. 
Bastards. I know. It's, it just jumped out of the page at me, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, just a few other things. Uh, there's a Kenya boss attack uh, where Al-Kebab, Al no, oh, sorry, Al-Shabab. Al-Shabab. <laughs> Al-Kebab, they should be called Al-Kebab. Uh, Al-Shabab is about a, as, as about a made-up name as Al-Kebab. Um, they singled out and killed 28 passengers who would not recite the Islamic creed, according to Kenyan police. This is in Kenya. Stopped the bus, got people off the bus. Whoever couldn't recite some ridiculous Islamic creed got killed. That's such a ridiculous narrative as to what their motivation would be. It's not know. the first time that's been allegedly used. No. Remember during the Nairobi mall bombing? Yes. They sure. shot anyone who couldn't couldn't say, Name I don't something know, or Alar Bar. But the the point about this Kenya thing is, and they're from Somalia, they're in Kenya. The point about that situation, I mean, more and more when you look at it, everything that goes on in the world in terms of terrorism and Islamic terrorism, it's all about the US and its client states in the Middle East. Uh, but if it's not in the Middle East in particular, for example, ISIS, if it's in Kenya and Africa with Islamic militant groups in the Maghreb and North Africa and other parts of Africa, Somalia and Kenya. All of it, it doesn't matter, all of it is about the US trying to prevent China and Russia from becoming uh, dominant, essentially, in the world and from uh, calling an end to the Anglo-American empire. Because, I mean, China has been, over the past few years, has been making major uh, economic deals with Kenya and Somalia. Uh, Russia has been in there as well, but particularly China. Uh, oil deals uh, with uh, with Somalia, uh, major um, major port deals uh, in Kenya, and a major major railroad. Deals. That's the difference. You see, the, check this out. The Chinese have officially begun construction on a 13.8 billion railway project that will connect the port of Mombasa, which is in Kenya. Uh, and the capital city of Nairobi, and eventually possibly even link Kenya's market with landlocked neighbors Uganda, Rwanda, and South Sudan. So this is what the, I mean, Africa is, is British, right? It's, it's the, the white man's burden. That's, they've put all this effort into supposedly you know, helping Africa throughout the whole colonial empire, which is effectively was slavery and keeping it down. And now that China is coming in, and look what China is doing. One of the first things that China does when it gets a real foothold into Africa is it starts building a railroad that, yeah. the, that the Kenyan government is like ecstatic about because it's going to link Kenya and other African countries and, and do wonders for their economy. And it's, it's something that should have happened years ago in Kenya, for example, under British colonial rule in the 40s or 50s or even beforehand in the, in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. But no, because the British were there for being settlers and exploiting and stealing and thieving. They have no interest in building up no, the industrial not. capacities of their colonies. Absolutely That's not. The and, difference. Chi- and China comes in and starts to do that. They're actually doing decent, reasonable deals with African countries. And the Brits and the Americans have a connection. And what is the result? Islamic terrorism. They start yeah. putting pressure on the host country by launching a funding training Jihadi mercenaries to stay to to to, to present themselves as as you know uh, angry Muslims who want to throw overthrow the Kenyan government and that's just a proxy attack on the Kenyan government to put it back in line and to and to send a signal to say you know these guys could overthrow you if you don't stop working with people we don't want you to work with you have to stay in the gutter essentially you have to stay as a subservient Africa that you always were and don't be doing deals with Russia and China. 
Yeah. Well, I've got that's a hundred people don't understand it when they look when they see that stuff. That is really the the overview, you know. And yeah. There's no point in getting into the details of trying to figure out, you know, the white widow uh, that, that we did a show on. This is. This white uh, English girl who's supposedly an arch terrorist who was at the Westgate uh, terror attack. No point in trying to look too much into that. Just look at it from the overarching global perspective and you see that it's curtains for the Anglo-American Empire and they feel it even if they don't recognize it. They feel it and their response to uh, the end of their reign is to just go bonkers with Muslim terrorism, Mm -hmm. i.e. proxy, mercenary, Muslim, whatever uh, uh, terrorist attacks on on anybody that is is they feel threatened by same week um the long talked about railway that would connect china with europe officially opened now this it's not quite there yet because the nature of the infrastructure is that any train leaving china would have to technically change three times because of the different sizes and tracks and so on. Nevertheless, there is now a functioning railway system linking Duisburg, Germany with Shanghai. I mean, I thought that was theory and maybe sometime in the faraway future, but Mm -hmm. they've quietly just been going ahead and doing these things in the background. It's great to see, you know. I mean, not that it means that, you know, we're all going to live in a in Valhalla, you know, in the near future under under Chinese and Russian rule, but it's better. Yeah, it's better than what we have right now. Yeah, um, we, you know, we'll, we'll give it to our caller Drew, who's who's rightly, you know, he's rightly excited by it. Yeah, because it, it is such a fast tracking the end of this hell, where we hold back from going, you know, and singing Kumbaya and Hallelujah on it is that we know what these cycles are capable of. And in the context of what today's show was about, you see, the inevitability of historical cycles is that they close. The ultimate role, whether they realize it or not, of the psychopaths in power may be to just call curtains on this current civilization. Yeah, by forcing it to a point where it's no longer sustainable. Yeah. Um, I want to check to see if we have a call on the line. Yeah, it's Harrison here. Hey, Harrison, you're late. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're not really late. We know you. Hello. We've heard yeah. of you before. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, Stefan just left, so yeah, that's why you're calling in now. Um, well, we weren't... Do you have anything, you know, from your side of the, the world yeah, just, that you want I just, to... Uh, I just wanted to, to bring up one thing that happened last week, and it kind of ties in with Stefan's talk um, about the historical cycles. I think it's kind of... It's very symbolic, not even symbolic, but just over-the-top in-your-face that on Friday, Russia proposed a resolution at the UN, the title of which was Combating Glorification of Nazism and Other Practices that Contribute to Fueling Contemporary Forms of Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. And the only three countries to vote against this resolution were the United States, Canada, and Ukraine. Now, that just... You know, we've been talking on thought. It's kind of funny, the, yeah. About the, the the fascist state that is the United States for years, but to for them to to do this in such in such a way, it just made my jaw drop. And when you actually read the the resolution, it's it's all stuff. It's talking about precedents and just um, um, reaffirming different resolutions and conventions that already exist. And I'll just read two examples of the language. 
so the the resolution is quote like alarmed in this regard at the spread in many parts of the world of various ex- extremist political parties, movements and groups, including neo-Nazis and skinhead groups, as well as similar extremist ideological movements. It is deeply concerned by all recent manifestations of violence and terrorism incited by violent nationalism, racism, xenophobia, and related intolerance. And it goes on like that. So the idea that the United States and Canada, I mean, we can it's obvious Kiev would veto this thing or vote against it. The, the, the idea that they would you know, vote against this is just, uh, I can't even believe it. That, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's standard language. You'd think that they'd just, um, you know, go along with it because, you know, there's a, the whole, in Europe at least, and all the European countries that abstain from the vote, there's all the anti-visionism um, mm. laws and things like that. So you'd think that they'd get on board with this. But no, it's because Russia abs- proposed it. <clears throat> Oh, because Russia proposed it. So obviously there's a there's an implication there in what it's really about, which is about Ukraine. So that's why all of Europe abstained, which is more or less the same as agreeing with it. When you abstain against something as clear-cut as that, you're kind of like you're on the wrong side of the moral fence right there. Who, who's appeasing Nazis now? Yeah, and to vote against it in, in the U.S. like says it all. But that's obviously just silly political games. But don't they do that, uh, have that vote every year in the U.N.? Or pass that resolution, or pass that to, to kind of reaffirm from a you know historical Nazi yeah. perspective. It's every year, hey, we're still. But yep. I mean, I wonder what the if they do it every year. I wonder what the historical voting pattern is. Maybe the U.S. has always voted against it. Well, I'll I'll check that out and and uh, yeah, let people know. But it was just but definitely it's a uh, it's a sign of the times. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if that's a if that isn't a a harbinger of yeah. not just a harbinger, uh, it's. A, it's a very accurate reflection of of the world we live in, run by a bunch of you know the the preeminent, supposed preeminent power in the world is a is a supporter of Nazism. fascism and Nazism. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, anything else? Um, well, just at the same time that's happening, you know the the. The, the right sector and all the fascist groups in Ukraine are, you know, real Nazis. So, and Poroshenko's awarding the the battalion leader of the Azov battalion, like the the what is it called, like the kind of like a medal for the cur- battle of or honor of courage or something like that. So they're getting mm-hmm. they're actually honoring these Nazi fighters, and the U.S. is totally supporting them, and. Then at the same time, the U.S. has said they're going to continue continue supporting the so-called moderate rebels in Syria when we know that these moderate rebels are not moderate and they they never have been. They're just as bad as ISIS, and in fact, they are often at times the exact same thing as ISIS. So it's mm-hmm. it's just frustrating to be able to just see that the the U.S. is openly supporting these you know vicious psychopathic murderous groups. Just barbar like barbaric, and um, and then they vote against a resolution that basically says Nazism is bad. It's just yeah. Yeah, at least they're being honest about it. They've always been that way about uh, about yeah. Nazism and fascism and murderers and killers. That's what uh, that was the, the that is the U.S. and has been the U.S.'s bread and butter for for decades. But at least now, I mean, it's kind of refreshing to see them being a bit and, more. Positive transparent thing. about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks for the call, Harrison. No, thanks. And for the update.
Okay. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We're going to leave it there for this week, folks. We've uh, run over time. Our official time, that is. Next but week. doesn't exist. But next week, we will be talking to... William Patrick Patterson. Is back for a second interview, or rather part two, of yes. uh, the interview we did with him uh, several months ago. I think it was... Uh, yeah, sometime August, early summer. August. August. Or, or July. Um, so that was a good interview. It was uh, an interesting interview, and uh, it was kind of... Um, really uh, William that wanted to kind of come back on and, and, and finish what he had started type of thing. I think he felt that he didn't uh, get to say uh, as much. So it seems that he has more to say, more secrets to reveal. And they will be revealed here on Soft Talk Radio next Sunday at the same time. So until then... Yeah, have a good one. Thanks to our listeners and our callers and our chatters and everybody else who needs to be thanked. Thank you and bye-bye. See you next week.